This is the podcast of Redemption Bible Church, where applicational preaching is a distinctive of our church. For more information, log on to redemptionfw.org. Thanks for listening. All right, this is in Acts 18, uh, verses 18 through the end of the chapter. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria with him, Priscilla, and Aquila. At Cantria, he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow, and they came to Ephesus, and he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a, for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. Then he had landed at, when he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that Christ was Jesus. I wish I could promise you that there's no danger with me being up here. I cannot promise that. Uh, So let's start today by talking about the greatest teacher-student duo in cinematic history. Yoda and Luke Skywalker. Hold on, hold on. That can't be right. Jamie, are you writing my notes again? Anyways, the greatest teacher-student duo in cinematic history is Mr. Miyagi and Daniel LaRusso. This duo was so good, they made a spin-off TV show 40 years after its release, after a somewhat failed remake 30 years after its release. We'll argue about that later. But the reason that this was so popular, in my opinion, the reason that made this movie so good was the training montage. When we think of Karate Kid, what do we think of? We think of wax on, wax off, paint the fence. We think of all those things that Mr. Miyagi used to teach Daniel. Now today we might sue Mr. Miyagi for like child labor or something like that, but that's neither here nor there. At the time, it was a great movie and it was amazing. What makes it so impressive is that Daniel didn't understand what he was doing or why he was doing it. He was waxing cars and painting fences, and he had no idea why. But he continued to do them because he trusted Mr. Miyagi enough to do these things that made zero sense to him. And in the end, he did get a lot of good things from doing all of these things that Mr. Miyagi taught. In the same way, in our lives, we often find ourselves doing things that we don't often understand. It seems pointless and it seems just completely useless. But we trust God enough to keep doing these things. And in the end, God sees things that we can't see and we will never see. 
But through God and through our trust in him, we will trust that he, don't, he knows what's best for us and we will continue on our path. We have to humble ourselves to God to allow him to work in our lives in the way that he intends. That brings us to our big idea today. Humble yourself before God. Humble yourself before God. And when we humble ourselves, we get access to four things. The first thing being God's purpose. God's purpose. In verse 18 through 23, it says, After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At century, he had cut his hair for he was under a vow. I want to pause there for a second. Now, this does not mean that you need to go get your hair cut right now. It certainly does not mean that of the four of us, Adam is the most religious. That's not what that means. What this means is Paul took the Nazarite vow, which, and he did this as thanksgiving to God for what God did in Corinth. What that means is he didn't cut his hair for a period of time, and then at the end of this vow, he cut it all off and brought it to the temple as proof of his dedication. So again, don't go get your hair cut because I told you to. That's not what that means. Now, picking back up in verse 19, it says, And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phryga, strengthening all the disciples. Here we see Paul traveling from city to city with places that already have churches, strengthening disciples in these churches. Paul clearly has a purpose in mind. And uh, in verse 21, we see him say, I will return to you if God wills. He's going wherever God is willing him to go. Paul is humbling himself to the will of God. And by doing this, he is allowing God's purpose to become his purpose. When Paul makes his decisions, he first consults God and finds out what God wills for him. Regardless of what opportunities he has, he is always asking and listening to God for answers. He's humbling himself and he's receiving his purpose from God. If you really look at it, in verse 21, Paul has a great opportunity. How often do you teach the gospel to someone and they think, and then, and then they say to you, please teach me more. Like, I want to know more about this Jesus. Doesn't that seem exactly what you would want to happen and exactly what you should keep doing? Nobody would fault Paul for staying in Ephesus and teaching these people that were eager to hear his words. In fact, we would expect him to do that. The people he's teaching are asking him to teach more, to learn more about Jesus. Doesn't that seem like something God wants from us? Yet Paul tells them he cannot stay because, Paul, because God has plans and Paul, and Paul is trusting God's plans, humbling himself to God's purpose, believing that what God has planned is better than what Paul could ever see in front of him. God's purposes go far beyond what we can see and they normally do. We don't know what to expect from God or his purpose. Even when the option in front of us seems to be right, we have to humble ourselves and ask God what he wants us to do. In my life, I thought I was supposed to go into sales, be a marketing major at IU. I thought it was something I'd be good at, so it seemed at the time to be the wise decision. But God's purpose for me, 
obviously went far beyond what I could see and what I thought I was capable of. A lot of times when God's purpose is talked about in our Christian circles, it's talked about with a little bit of fear or even a little bit of hesitancy. We expect something from God that we're gonna hate, something extremely difficult. For me, I always imagine uh, the Lord of the Rings, which is the best fantasy series. Um, If you disagree, we can talk about that later and we'll bring you to Jesus. Um, I imagine Aragorn, Legolas, and Gimli. If you haven't seen the movie, it's about a 12-hour series, and 10 of those hours, the three of them just run around fighting battles, never really staying in one place, which is extremely entertaining to watch, but not something I think I want to participate in. And if we're being honest, don't we all imagine something like that from God? Don't we expect something like Paul's situation, traveling all around the world, never settling in one place, never marrying, preaching the gospel everywhere he goes? For some of you, that might sound like an amazing purpose. That sounds like something you really wanna do. And for others, myself included, that sounds horrible. I would not wanna do that. Well, I I have some news for you that should be encouraging. We're not all Paul. God's purpose for us will not be the same as it was for Paul. What we get from God is often very different, especially when it comes to God. We've all heard the saying, God looks at our plans and he laughs. I don't doubt that at all. Like I said, 18 months ago, I was a marketing major at IU and my plan was to go into some kind of sales, living on my own for the first time, doing whatever I wanted, living for myself. This is about the last place I thought I'd end up. Even when I was younger, I had a pastor that would always talk about how he would tell his mom growing up that he would never become a pastor which was funny and the joke should have ended there. But my mom, being a church mom, she would, you know, nudge me, give me the eyebrow pump and say, that'll be you someday. So I looked back at her and I said, I'll never be a pastor, but unlike him, I mean it. (laughs) Yeah, I think I definitely sealed my fate that day. There's not a doubt in my mind that at this very moment, God has doubled over in laughter. Isn't he funny? But you know what? I love this. I've loved interning here. It's encouraging to me being this whole summer with Jamie, Drew, and Adam, shockingly enough, has been a great time. (laughs) I know. And it's been really encouraging. And why would we expect anything different from the all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-loving God? Why would we expect him to give us a purpose that we won't like? He created us. He created our purpose, and he loves us. Why would we get something that we don't like? Of course, I'm not saying that once you find your purpose and humble yourself, your life will be a cakewalk. It's not gonna be easy. But if you humble yourself to God's purpose and let his become yours, I promise you it will be the best thing that you ever do in your life. So some questions to ask yourself. How often do I consult God in my decision-making? If I truly believe that God loves me, Why don't I always trust his purposes? So we know that humbling ourselves to God gives us God's purpose, and now it also gives us God's passion. God's passion. In verses 24 and 25, it says, Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. 
He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. So looking at Apollos now, what does the text say about him? He was a Jew. He was a native of Alexandria. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures, and he had been instructed in the ways of the Lord. He was fervent in spirit. Now for me, I would love if you guys would all walk away and describe me that same way. He's from Fort Wayne, he's American. He's eloquent, instructed in the way of the scriptures and very competent. Do I expect that? No, but I can dream, I can dream. So clearly Apollos is a very qualified man. He's from Alexandria. Alexandria was a very famous city, the second most important city in the Roman uh, empire. It was famous for its schools and its philosophy. So being from there, Apollos was taught there and that carried a lot of weight in the ancient world. It was a big deal. It would be similar to someone today saying that they were taught at Yale or Harvard. The only difference is today we'd probably roll our eyes and tell them to get on with their point. But back then it mattered and people cared. He was clearly taught the scriptures at some point in his life and he was, very, and he was taught very well. So Apollos was a, was a very qualified man who had enough knowledge and enough talent to do whatever he wanted. But what did he end up doing? He went to Ephesus to teach. Keep in mind, this was the ancient times. He didn't just buy a plane ticket and get to Ephesus in a day. He took six to eight days just to travel to go teach. As much as I think preaching is what I need to do, would I travel six to eight days every time I wanted to teach? I would love to say yes, but we'll see. He traveled that long just to teach. He still went to Ephesus. And we know that he went to teach because later he, he leaves straight from Ephesus to Corinth to immediately teach the word there. Not only did he teach, but he taught with passion. He was fervent in spirit. So we have to ask why. Why would someone like Apollos travel all the way to Ephesus just to teach? The answer is in the text. Apollos was fervent in spirit. That word fervent means an intense and passionate feeling. For most of you in your Bibles, it will have a footnote at the bottom indicating that fervent in spirit could also be translated as fervent in the spirit. Either way, whichever one is right, I'm not fluent in Greek, shockingly enough, so I'm not sure, but whichever one is right, it still shows that Apollos was very passionate about what he was doing. He humbled himself to God, received God's passion. He was passionate about the things that God was passionate about, teaching the word. His humility to God directed his passions. We all know somebody like that. Somebody that when they get passionate or excited about something, you can't help but feel passionate about the same thing. I can't tell you the number of times I've left a conversation with my dad or sister and been really excited. And then someone asked me, why am I excited? I don't know. They were just so excited, I couldn't help myself. And in the same way, if we humble ourselves to God and get in his word and learn what he's passionate about, we won't be able to help ourselves to have his passions become ours. And our passion will lead us to action. If you're passionate about a sports team, you buy that team's clothing, you know all their players, you watch all their games. If you're passionate about politics, you'll 
tweet about it. You'll bring it up at a barbecue and everyone will have a fun time when you do that. And when we think about someone that is passionate about Jesus, what do we think of? I know for me, when I hear a passionate Christian, I think of a Christian that's yelling, a Christian that's pointing their fingers, judging and accusing others. That doesn't make sense to me. If we're truly passionate about Jesus, we should become more like him, do what he says, and he doesn't tell us to do any of those things. If we humble ourselves to God, our passion, our passions will become his passions. Our love for Jesus will be genuine and the action that comes from our passion will be love towards others. John 13, 34 and 35 shows what Jesus is passionate about. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. How many times is love in those two verses? A lot. Jesus was passionate about this. He was passionate about our love for each other. So if we truly humble ourselves, if we truly let our, his passions become ours, we also will love one another and it will be obvious to everyone around us. So some things to think about. Am I really passionate about Jesus? In what way do I need to forget myself and allow God's passions to become mine? Our humility brings us God's purpose, God's passion, and God's precision. God's precision. In verse 25b and 26, it says, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Apollos was teaching the word, but he did not have the full message. He didn't know about the baptism of Jesus. He knew about John the Baptist's baptism of repentance, and he knew about the Messiah, and he knew that Christ was the Messiah. He was taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. He wasn't wrong in anything that he taught. He was just missing a little precise detail about Jesus' baptism of the Holy Spirit, which is a big deal. And he, Priscilla and Aquila took him aside and taught him these things. And when they did that, Apollos didn't say, yeah, I was taught in Alexandria. I know my Bible. Get out of my face. I'm better than you. He easily could have done that. And in doing so, he would have lost this precision and probably lost a lot of people with his message. Yet when Priscilla and Aquila tell him that he was wrong, he humbles himself, gets this precise message, and learns what he does not know. He humbled himself to a married couple that approached him after he taught, a married couple that he probably didn't know before this moment. He may have heard of them, but he didn't know them personally. So why would he listen to them? He had humility. They taught him what doctrine he was missing and they helped make his message more precise. Precision matters. Even the slightest imprecision could come back and really hurt you down the road. If you're setting sail from, to leave the New York Harbor and you're heading to France, if you're just one or two degrees off on your map, you will end up most likely on the wrong continent. In the same way, what might not seem like a big deal at first, just not knowing Jesus' baptism of the Holy Spirit, but knowing everything else, you can start off and you'll be pretty close. You'll be right there. But a few years later, maybe a few months later, you'll turn around and you'll realize you're nowhere you, where you need to be. 
You're not even close because of that little imprecision that never went corrected because you wouldn't humble yourself to what God was teaching. So it, it brings us precision in doctrine. But does God really care about precision? Doesn't he only care about our hearts and what we say? Ephesians 4, 14 and 15 says, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, in speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. As we learn and grow in our doctrine, becoming more precise, we become more like Christ. Isn't that what we wanna do? And we do that by becoming more precise. Apollos got this precision by humbling himself. And that's how we also will receive our precision. We have to humble ourselves. He received the necessary knowledge that he was missing because of this humility. If we look around today, we don't see a lot of biblical precision going on. Pastors are taking the Bible out of context, trying to push their social or political agendas. Politicians who, let's be honest, probably don't know that much about the Bible are trying to use it to push their agendas. We have to be precise in our doctrine, precise in the gospel in order to protect ourselves and the people around us. Some things I hear are so far out of left field that I don't know how they got it from the Bible. And I, if I'm being honest, it makes me angry. And I want to yell at them and shout and make sure everyone that heard them knows that they were wrong and I'm right because I'm looking in the Bible. But if you look at what Priscilla and Aquila did, they didn't do that. We have to humble ourselves to God's precision because we are not God. We don't know their hearts. We don't know why they say the things that they do. We don't know if they themselves are just misunderstood or if they were misled when they were younger. We don't know that they were trying to push this agenda. So we have to act in a way that God would. Wouldn't it be nice if we could put whatever we want in the Bible? It would, but we can't. We have to humble ourselves to what God says in his word or else we will never be able to preach or teach an accurate and precise message. Wouldn't it be great if the Bible said that everyone who believes gets to bring 10 people with them to heaven? But it doesn't. And we have to humble ourselves to that idea. We have to humble ourselves to John fourteen six, which says, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the father except through me. We have to accept that. We have to accept these things and we have to humble ourselves to what God says if we are to truly and accurately and effectively witness to other people. When we humble ourselves, we will become precise in our message and in our doctrine. It will change the way that we live our lives every single day. God's precision is not just a doctrinal precision. He also gives us precision in our interactions. Let's look now at Priscilla and Aquila, how they showed God's precision by taking Apollos to the side and teaching him privately. They didn't call him out, yell at him in front of everybody, potentially turning his future witnesses away. They took him aside and taught him. They could have easily just yelled at him, shouted at him and ruined his entire platform and nobody would probably listen to him after that but they had God's precision in this interaction and knew that they needed to take him aside and teach him the things that he was not accurate about. When I see a video or I hear something that's not teaching the Bible correctly or leaving out 
something just like Apollos was, I get angry. I wanna make sure everyone knows about it. But I have to remind myself again, I'm not God. God knows their intentions and I have to ask him how he wants me to interact with this person and this situation. God gives us his precision if we put ourselves aside, put our own passions, desires, and emotions aside and ask for his. So something to ask yourself, in what ways have I been imprecise interacting with other people? How can I interact with God's precision from now on? Humility brings God's purpose, God's passion, God's precision, and finally, God's power. In verses 27 and 28, it says, And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Apollos immediately uses this new precise message just one verse later to go to Achaia, which is Corinth, and strengthen believers and refute Jews. Priscilla and Aquila, they were well known in Corinth. So a letter from them was a big deal. It carried a lot of weight. And if Apollos had never humbled himself to them and never learned from them, they probably wouldn't have sent this letter and it would have affected his witness in Corinth. So his humility led him to more witness. He greatly helped and he powerfully refuted. He couldn't do that by himself. He did that with God's power. If we look earlier in Acts 1.8, Jesus says to his apostles, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. When we humble ourselves to God, let his purpose become ours, let his passions become ours and use his precision, we have access to his power. James 4.10 says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. The power to preach the gospel. How does Apollos strengthen and how does he refute? By showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Apollos is a perfect example of what we are to do with this power. In verse 26, he learns more about God. And in verse 27, he's traveling to Corinth to use this new message to witness to other people. The power that we have access to is the power to teach. We have to remember we are not God. God does not give us his unlimited power. That's not how he works. He gives us the power to preach the gospel. He gives us the power of the word. He doesn't give us power in our eloquent words or our well-crafted speeches. The power of the cross, the power of the word is what God gives us. 1 Corinthians 1.17 says, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. We have to remember that we don't have the power to save. That's not what we're here for. We're here to preach the word and let God do the saving. As Jamie often reminds us, we don't have the power to make someone repent. We have the power to ask God and lead them to repentance, but we cannot cause that repentance. In the same way, we cannot cause that salvation. We have to rely on God to do that in our place. We bring them to God 
so that he can do the work. That's what God gives us the power for. We aren't here to save people's souls. We'll never be able to do that. Only God can. So something you need to ask yourselves, what areas do I need to remind myself that it's God's power and not mine? How can I let God use his power in my life more? Our humility to God gives us access to God's purpose for our lives, God's passions, God's desires, God's precision in doctrine and God's precision in interaction and God's power to preach the gospel. The less of Ethan that people see when I'm up here and in my everyday life, let's all agree here, the better off everybody is. For me, it just seems like a no-brainer of a trade-off. See me or see God. I think all of us can agree it's better to see God. Every single day, we need to remind ourselves that that's what our, our goal is. We need to make sure we're showing less of ourselves and more of God in our everyday life. We have to be humble to God to receive his purpose, his passion, his precision, and his power. There's no other way to do it. So let's all make sure we're showing less of ourselves and more of God through our humility. Let's pray. Uh, Dear Lord, I pray that you give us humility. You humble us to your message. You You give us your power, your precision, your passion, and your purpose. Regardless of what we say and do, we have to humble ourselves to you And that's the only way that we can do exactly what you want us to do. And in your name, I pray, amen.